God bless you. Take a seat. It's great to have you here. I'm glad that you came to New Hope today. If you have got an outline, um, if you haven't got an outline, I suggest you take one because there's not many left now. And if you're visiting again, thank you for coming. We're glad that you came. We're in the middle of a series called Reasons for Believing. And my objective in this series is to help equip you when you're at work, when you're at school, when you're at university, to answer the tough questions that come your way. Questions like, well, is there such a thing as God? Is, does God exist? And we looked at that. In fact, as we kicked off, we looked at, first of all, real truth exists and is knowable. That's what we did in the very first week. Second week, we looked at the evidence for the existence of God using science specifically. And we looked at it from the beginning that the universe began. Well, what was before the beginning? And we looked at the universe at the beginning. We looked at the evidence for God in complex design. Complex design doesn't just happen. It's the result of an intelligent mind who cares and puts carefully together his creation. And we looked at the evidence for moral law. And by the way, we so we said, okay, so we agree there was a God. But the next question is, well, what does he look like? What are some of his attributes? And that next week we looked at eight attributes that this creator, this designer, whoever he is, must have. That's what we did in week three. Then week number four, we looked at the fact that if God exists, then miracles are possible because the creation of the universe is the biggest and most amazing and dramatic Miracle had ever happened. So if that happened, no other miracle is off the table. Conversely, if there is no God, miracles are impossible. And then last week, which was a critical week, we addressed the objection that some of your work colleagues have. Oh, that Bible that you believe is a bunch of fairy stories and myths just made up by men. And we looked at that hard and fast and we produced a stack of non-biblical or what we call extra-biblical evidence to show it's way more verified than any other ancient document in history. We looked at how accurate it was. In fact, we saw that there were some 36,000 other sources, even if every original scroll was destroyed. We showed you from extra-biblical sources that we could reconstruct the entire New Testament bar 11 verses, which is amazing. No other document in history comes close to that. Now today, I want to help you. We as a church want to help you answer the question because this is going to come up. Oh, well, okay, this guy, Jesus. Well, we saw that he existed, but the question is, is he never claimed to be God. He was just another man. He never even claimed to be God. He was just like, you know, Muhammad. He was just one of those guys, a prophet. That's all he was. And then, so what? Anybody can claim that you're God. But did he prove? Did he prove that he was God? And that's what we're going to look at. Is there any proof? So let's start by looking at some of the evidence. See, that Jesus claimed to be God. That's what we're going to look at first of all, because some people say, He never did. He never once claimed He was God. Prove it to me. Well, take notes today, because you're going to be able to answer those objections. Well, first one we're going to look at is the great claim to the great I Am. It's evidenced in Exodus 3.14. The one word or one name that identified the God of Israel in the Old Testament was I am, or Jehovah, or Yahweh. That's what it was. Now we pick this up, and the situation is, Moses has just been asked to go and stand before all uh, the Pharaoh in Egypt, and basically tell him, let my people go. Let them go. And that was quite a daunting task, because that's like going into Pyongyang. And telling Kim Jong Un, hey, you, you know, we want to get out of here. He's going to off with your head. He was a very powerful ruler. And Moses said to God, ah, okay, suppose, let's just play this out. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, first of all, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, uh, what is his name? What shall I tell him? God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And this is what you were to say the Israelites, you know, first of all, he was to say, you know, the Israelites are going to say, well, who are you? Who gives you authority to poke the Pharaoh in the eye, potentially causing us problems? Who gives you, Mr. Moses, the right to do that? And this is what God said. This is what you just say firstly to the Israelites. I am has sent you. Now this now was so special that only the high priest could speak it in the temple in Jerusalem. Why? Because this was the one and true name for the holy God for the Jews. So what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, regarding the objection that he never directly claimed to be God, Jesus applied this word, the word the Jews wouldn't even speak, God's most holy name, the name, to himself. That's what he did. And here are two examples that show Jesus doing that. When the Jews accused Jesus of being demon-possessed, he said, no, 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 you got that wrong. And then he went on to say that he was greater than Abraham and plainly told the Jews, I am. And they knew exactly what he meant. Here's what he says. John 8. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he was glad. Now when the Jews heard that, they couldn't believe what they were hearing. They were scandalised. And he said, you're not even 50 years old. The Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus stunned them with their reply. And then he comes back and he says, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now when he said that, the Jews' whiskers stood up on their beard. They knew exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming to be God, the great I am. John 8, 5, 9. And this when they heard it, they were so enraged. This is a familiar theme you will see. They pick up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, the Bible says, slipping away from the temple grounds. Here's another example. The second, uh, Jesus told the Jewish officials and the soldiers and the chief priests, here's more people, he directly, boldly used the name to claim his divine origin on the night, his divine identity on the night he was betrayed by Judas. Judas, the Bible says, came to the garden with a detachment of Roman soldiers. Remember this? In the garden of Gethsemane. You may recall this. And some Jewish officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees were there. And they were carrying torches and lanterns. Who saw the passion? Remember this? Starts off with that at the beginning. Uh, they're carrying lanterns, torches and weapons. Of course. Now verse 4 picks it up. Jesus, knowing what was going to happen to him, went out. This is a beautiful setup. Beautiful setup. And he says, huh. Who is it that you want? <laughs> Verse 5 says, And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth is who we're after. Jesus says to them, I am. And in your Bibles, if you are a Christian today and you happen to have brought those, you'll see in brackets the word he. Now, whenever you see the word in brackets, you need to look in your margin. And if you look in the margin, it says, it is not in the original manuscripts, the word he. Translators put it into our English version so it makes grammatical sense for us. That's why it's there. So if you ever see that and you wonder why, it says, not in the original manuscripts, that's why it's there. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with them. Verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am... They drew back and they fell to the ground. Notice the effect. God Almighty saying His name. Woof, they're on the, on the deck. The power in Him declaring, I am. Jesus speaking His holy name on trained armed men and Jewish officials, they are decked. And that graphically illustrates that Jesus could very easily call legions down and obliterated those people who came with him uh, at him easily. Just the word. 
in the word was the beginning. We won't go there. Verse 7 and 8. So he asked them again, <laughs> whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered them again. That's not in the Bible, but I'll just put that word in again. I told you I am. There he is again, plainly declaring. So if you seek me, let these men go. So Jesus is declaring in very clear terms to the unbelieving Jews and the officials and the soldiers that he was God. So if anybody ever says that to you, oh, I never claimed to be God, don't believe him. That's, by the way, why they were there to get him. That's exactly why they were there to get him. Look at this. Next verse, John 10, 31. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus turns to him and he says this, I have shown you great and many miracles, many great miracles, excuse me, from the Father. From what, for which of these are you trying to now stone me? And he says to him, we're not stoning you for any of those, he replied, but for blasphemy. That's a big word. Because you, a mere man, are claiming to be God. So that is very clear. If anybody ever says to you, Jesus was not claiming to be God, you can say, actually, that's the whole reason why they were wanting to stone Him and to crucify Him, because He was claiming to be God. And that to them was blasphemy. Second, more evidence that Jesus claimed to be God. How about some of the titles that He used? Jesus claimed and used titles that were exclusively used for God. For example, here, God is called the Lord. Of course, look it up in Psalm 110. Jesus Christ claimed to be Lord. There in Mark. I haven't got time to go through all those, but there they are in your notes. He was King. But of course, Jesus is the King of Kings. God is called a Good Shepherd. So is Jesus in Matthew 2 and 6. He's a light. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. Living water. Come to me. I will give you living. So what God claimed... Jesus claimed, and that's obvious because Jesus is God. Same deal. Not only that, number three, Jesus accepted worship. He accepted worship and honour due to God alone because the Jews knew this, worship God. He said, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Worship was only ever get to be given to God, not to angels, not to people, only to God. Now, Jesus accepted that. On at least 10 different occasions, He accepted worship. That's another indication. Who worshipped Jesus? Well, a couple of ex quick examples. Men healed of leprosy and, of and women of demon possession and then blindness. They all worshipped Him. You'll see that in Matthew 8, Mark 5 and John 9. He accepted worship from his own disciples. Do you know that? Well, look at that. And both Jewish and non-Jewish women as well. And in fact, he never refused worship from anyone. So here's the point. In accepting worship, he was declaring and claiming he was God by even doing that. Number four, Jesus commanded his disciples to pray in his name. Jews are to pray to God and to God alone. Yet Jesus told his own disciples, no, you pray to me. You pray in my name. And they could ask him for anything. Not only was he saying, pray to him and ask in his name, he was also claiming he could and would answer in prayer. And Jews knew only God could do this. So Jesus' command was an obvious claim to be God. Number five, Jesus claimed and did lead a sinless life. Very important point. No other religious leader ever has claimed to be perfect. No, nobody. Not the Pope, not Muhammad. In fact, Muhammad asked for forgiveness. In the Quran 47:19. Siddhartha Gautama, which is Buddha, he deserted his wife. So all these other supposed heroes screwed up royally, including Muhammad, who shacked up with a bird at nine years old. That's another story. The, uh, the Bible's greatest heroes had many failures, but Jesus 
There was no moral failure whatsoever on his, on his part. I'm going to show this in a second. In fact, he pointed out to the Jews one day, his enemies, who weren't friendly, he said, hey, for you guys, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? That's a good challenge, isn't it? Wouldn't take two seconds to find me guilty of sin. Probably are you too. You know, especially your enemies, they'd find something pretty quick. Those who knew him best. Now, by the way, not one responded from those Jews. By claiming to lead a sinless life, Jesus was in effect claiming to be perfect and therefore God. Those who knew him best. See, it's one thing to think a person's good and sinless at a distance, but have you ever noticed the closer you get somebody, the more you see of all the, the warts and the foibles? Ever notice that? So those who knew him best claimed he was sinless. In fact, here it is. We have one who is tempted in every way, just as you and I are, yet he did not sin. Second, 1 Peter 2. He committed no sin and no deceit was in his mouth. Boy, you control your tongue, you're a perfect person, as James says. Here's another one. He is holy and blameless and pure and set apart from sinners. He's different. And Christ offered himself unblemished to God. Now, that's one thing from your friends, but it's important because they're up close. What about his enemies? Let's take a broad, quick sample of those. How about Judas, the guy who betrayed him? Says this, I have sinned, this is Judas speaking, for I have betrayed innocent blood. His enemy who just betrayed him. How about Pilate, the guy that was in charge of his trial? He says, I find no basis to charge this, uh, charges for your charges against this man. I find nothing. Because boy, he'd be looking for something. Let's move along. How about his good wife? If he didn't get it, what about his wife? Often the wife gets it and the husband doesn't. She says, Oi, Pilate, don't have anything to do with this innocent man. Interesting. The centurion who's in charge at the bottom of the cross as he's being crucified. Surely this is a righteous man. Surely he was the son of God. Really? An enemy? A guy who just had a part in sticking him on the cross? How about the thief on the cross? This man has done nothing wrong. Multiple attestations to his sinlessness and to his deity. The testimony of friend and foe confirmed and showed about his own character, his deity is the best explanation for Jesus being without sin. Because I don't know about you, but I've never come across anybody in my life that hasn't sinned. Number six, Jesus claimed to do what only God could do. For example, only God has the power to forgive sin. Only God. Yet in Mark 2, 7, look, they're getting incensed, they're getting ticked. Why does this fellow talk like that? You can feel the blood pressure rising. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but? Who? God alone. God alone is the only person who can forgive sins. Number six. Again, further down. He's claimed to do what only God could do so he could forgive sins. The second is act as an ultimate judge. Only he can act as the ultimate judge. Only God has that power and the authority to actually judge impartially. You'll find that in Matthew 25. And then about this, uh, uh, here it goes here. Let's dig into that a little. All the nations, that's all the nations that ever have and ever will be, will stand before, gather before him, and he will separate the people And he will separate the people. One from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. See, sometimes to the untrained eye, they look pretty similar. But the day will come when every man, woman in this entire planet that's ever been born will stand before their maker. And he will separate. 
the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom has been prepared for you. That is a statement of eternity. May God's spirit speak. Only God has the power and authority to determine each person's final destiny. Only God. John 5.24 says this, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned with the goats as he is crossed from death into life. Thereby he is claiming to be God. Who is, yeah, okay. Now, I want to take a quick look at this. Jesus claimed and proved to have the power that only God has. Let's have a quick look through this table. If Jesus is God, He should be able to do anything that God can do, right? Logically equivalent. So, how about, firstly, God has the power to do miraculous miracles. And Jesus healed a wide variety of diseases. He healed the blind man, the lame, the lepers, and he even raised uh, and the dumb. Second, God has the ability to accurately predict the future. We're going to see that in a second. A little later on. Today, Jesus accurately predicted the future. I've given you some of these so you can take them away and look at, so at least you're armed with the evidence when you call upon God has power over nature. Jesus showed power over nature. Remember? Sea of Galilee, the storms, many other things like that. Walks on water, wind abate him, turns water into wine. And then he's got, God has power over demons and Satan. Remember, never ever get freaked out for those of you who are Christians. God has all of the power. He's omnipotent. All of it. He puts the devil you know, like a sandbox and say, that's your boundary, buster. You can go no farther. You can see evidence of that in Job. Not time to go into that night now, but never spend too much time focusing on him. Keep the main thing the main thing and God will take care of the rest. Over death, God has a power over death. Jesus raised the dead, you can see that. So when Jesus shows he has the power of God, he was confirming that he is God. 10 points. Exactly. So Jesus applied two unique titles to himself, and the Jews of the time understood this to be a clear statement of his divinity. The first title that he used, and you've seen it in the Scriptures, is Son of God. Jesus said he was a Son of God. In fact, in John 10, 36, he says, Why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I am the Son of God. Why do you do that? What's your problem? He's saying. Now, this does not mean, friends, in a biological sense. But in Greek, if you look at it in an interlinear Bible, which has the Greek and the English there, son of means the same as or equal to. This is what was getting the Jews riled. I am equal to God. And that's what ticked them. Now, the Jews knew that Jesus was claiming that. So in response... As we've seen, they turned against him. Here's some uh, uh, scriptures here. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die. Because he claimed what? Remember, that was why they were so incensed. Their whole system backwards. There was like them commitment uh, heresy to accept that this guy was the son of God. And for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Remember? But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal. Remember, Jesus is not the lieutenant to God, the second in command. He is God Himself. That's another deal when we talk about the Trinity. So, Jesus uses the word Son of Man. It was his favourite title of himself. And it was repeatedly used all throughout Scripture. 
Now, when Jesus applied this title to himself, the Jews understood that he was not claiming to be Joseph's son. And that irked them. He was claiming to be this divine figure referred to in Daniel's prophecy. This is where the term son of man comes from. So what happens is, and you'll see that in Daniel 7.13, if you want to make your side note. The high priest was so enraged, he grabbed his clothes and he ripped them. That's what he did. Why do we need any more witnesses, he said. You have heard it, it's blasphemy. That's it, it's over. We're done, we're settled. This guy needs to die. But by tearing his clothes, it was a symbol that this is so serious, it cannot be mended. This is an irreparable statement he's made. We're not going back, it's done. And therefore, death for blasphemy for claiming to be equal with God. So the Jews plainly, so never let anybody try and tell you Jesus never claimed to be God because he applied this to himself. Now, we're now left with three simple choices before we get to the proof. One, and C.S. Lewis is a genius who came out with this. Jesus' claim to be God is so clear in the Gospels that in no uncertain terms, Jesus must be saying one of only three possible things. Young person, person, friend who is seeking to know about Jesus, you have to honestly address this question. One, Jesus was either a flat out lunatic. What I mean by that is he thought he was God. But he wasn't. He was a nutter. Therefore, he was crazy, psychotic. Like somebody who, have you ever, you know, I mean, from time to time, and let, let me just say this, I, I do need to be careful here. I have the most tremendous respect and deepest sympathy and greatest encouragement for anybody who's ever struggled with mental illness. So let me put that out there. Okay. But one possible answer is he was psychotic, like a person who thinks he's Napoleon Bonaparte. He'll look you in the eye and tell you, I'm Napoleon Bonaparte. That's a possibility. You have to grapple with that. Number two, if he wasn't that, the next logical choice is a flat-out liar because he knows he's not, but he's trying to tell us all that he is. Remember, though, even his enemies considered Jesus a moral person. Nobody could find the seat in his mouth. They couldn't find it. So that's another possibility. We have to consider that. And then thirdly, we've got Jesus is Lord. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. They are your three basic choices. A great conversation focuser. You can bring a conversation. Well, who do you think he was? You've only got three possibilities. Either he was the Lord or he wasn't. If he wasn't, he was either a liar because he knew he wasn't and he's lying or he's a lunatic. He thought he was, but he really wasn't. Are you with me? Three possibilities. What are they? Lunatic, liar or Lord. Great three points to remember in your conversations. Now, I want you to think about something as we wrap this section up before we move to the next one. If... God became a man. Or let me say it this way. God was wrapped in flesh because we couldn't even stand to see what he was like. His brilliance would knock us over. What would he do? On the next table, I want to just want you to think about it this way. If God became a man, what do we like? Here's a few thoughts that I've put together here of what we could expect to happen if God came to earth as a man. And then I want you to sort of compare it to what actually happened when Jesus came. Firstly, if God came to earth as a man, he'd probably have a bit, a bit of a different entrance into life. And Jesus was virgin born. We'll cover that later on. Angels appeared and there were signs in the sky. So he definitely had a bit more of a different entrance than I had in this world and probably you too. Okay? Secondly, 
you would expect him to tell people that he was God. Hey, I'm God. I'm being very clear about that. And Jesus clearly told man he was God. We've just seen that. Both friend and foe. Thirdly, you'd expect him to live a perfect life because God cannot do it because he's perfect. And Jesus was without sin. Secondly, you'd expect him to provide some evidence that he was God because anybody can say that they are God, but the God again could be deluded or the liars. Well, Jesus provided that evidence by performing miracles, have power over nature and cast out demons. Also, you'd expect him to have power over disease and death. Well, last time I checked, Jesus healed men and he raised the dead. Then how about if he was God, you'd expect him to speak the greatest words ever spoken of his wisdom, the magnificence of his wisdom. And of course, Jesus did. Jesus taught the greatest moral commands of any man and nobody would dispute that. Men said, no one ever spoke that way as this man does. John 7. And then God would, we would expect him to provide a means by which men could come to know him. I mean, why would God come and not have us know him or why he came? Well, Jesus provided a way and he said he was the way to God. And then you'd expect God to have everlasting influence or lasting influence and universal. Jesus Christ has influenced more people, more buildings, more art, more architecture, more books than any other person ever, ever. He influenced it. Remember, he was only in ministry, as it were, for three years. Nobody else holds a candle to that. And then also we'd expect God to bring a message that would speak to all men of all times and all places. Now the gospel of Jesus Christ has reached men and women in every place, in every generation. How about the next one? Relate to men and women in various parts of society. He related to rich, poor, you know, from the lowest to the, to, from the highest to the lowest, Jews and Gentiles. Changed the lives of those who met him. Well, think about the challenges and the changes he knew, uh, he wrought. Satisfy spiritual hunger. Well, he's the bread of life. Living water. Show sympathy with our problems. Jesus showed incredible empathy and sympathy for our physical and our spiritual needs, right? Think about that. And then also to provide some kind of solution to this thing called sin and the problem of pain and suffering. Jesus died for our sins. He comforts us when we suffer and we have pain and when we face our problems and leaves some kind of permanent record that he was actually here. Well, I mean, why would God come and not record and leave a record for, uh, for others to know that he was here? And Jesus promised the New Testament. And then lastly, you'd expect him to leave the earth in a different manner than we would normally just you know, go into a grave and a bunch of bones. He didn't do that. Jesus ascended bodily in heaven in full view. So, when we add up the direct evidence, it's undeniable that Jesus directly claimed to be God. Clear? So you think you can defend that well now. Anybody that says that, otherwise is deluded. When we add up the evidence, it's utterly undeniable that Jesus directly claimed in many ways, and I've just summarised this today, and he didn't do it because he was crazy. He didn't do this to lie and deceive people. He did this for the one and only reason. He is God. So if somebody ever says to you, Jesus never claimed to be God, you can now most certainly explain, actually, he did claim to be God. But now we come to the hard part. But you've got to start at that part. Anyone can claim anything. Agreed? Isn't that true? Anyone can claim anything. To prove it, it's a different issue. <laughs> That's a very different issue. Is there any proof that he's God? And what is the evidence for his claim? So we've seen it's claimed. What's the evidence? Now, a lot of this evidence I'm going to talk to you today relies on last week's presuppositions that we saw that the New Testament is highly reliable, far more than any other document we've got in history. Now, since that was true, we can trust what they record about the deity of Jesus and what proof do they actually offer. Let's start off as an appropriate reading for the season. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man 
named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went down to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Now Mary was greatly troubled at his words. I wonder what kind of greeting that might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God, and you will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name. Not, you don't get to choose this one. I'm telling you, says Gabriel, you're going to call him Jesus. That's his name. What a stunning claim. The key to imagine if they am to you. Why would anybody invent something like that? Virgin births don't regularly happen. But if it were true, it would be definitely an act of God. And it could be offered then as proof that Jesus truly is God. Now, by the manner of his birth, the New Testament affirms that Jesus is God. Let's have a look at some of this. The New New Testament records that Jesus displayed the attributes. Because if God possesses an attribute, Jesus must possess it as well. In terms of their nature, there is no difference between Jesus and God. Zero difference. You see, because the Bible says God is eternal. Yeah? But the Bible also says Jesus is eternal. And I've given you the references so you can look at those later on. God created everything. And the Bible says here, Jesus created everything. That's what it says. Look it up there in John uh, 1. In the beginning was the Word. Huh? You read that. The Bible says God is life. The Bible says Jesus is life. The Bible says God is eternal ruler. Same for Jesus, eternal ruler. The Bible says God does not change. What does Hebrews 11 say? He, Hebrews 13, sorry. Jesus Christ is the same what? Yesterday. And, yeah, well, forever, forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Exactly the same attributes. The Bible says God is present everywhere. The Bible says Jesus is present everywhere, omnipresent there. The Bible says God knows everything. Likewise, all-powerful, has unique glory. Let me just summarise this quickly. You can read that in your own time. What God is, Jesus is. What Jesus is, God is. Therefore, Jesus is God. Simple as that. Both the Old and the New Testament show that to be true. Now, proof number three. At the baptism of Jesus, God the Father spoke from heaven and said, This is my Son in whom I am love. God the Father is speaking there. And He said the same on another occasion in 17.5, when the Father called Jesus my son, he was affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. How about the angels? That's God. How about the angels? What did they have to say? Gabriel told Mary her child would be the son of the Most High, the son of God. And then the angels in 2.11, the angels told the shepherds about his birth, referred to him as the Lord. And that's an attribute of deity. So we've got God, the angels. What about the next one? The other end of the scale. How about demons? Oh, they are real. Jesus knew the demons and the demons knew Jesus. Demons knew that Jesus to be God. They called him the son of God in Matthew 28, 9. And they identified, acknowledged who he is. Even if other people didn't, they knew who he was. What do you want to do with us, son of God? They shouted, have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Because you read what happens to them, lake of fire. They knew what's coming. Amazing how it's all so integrated. Not only the uh, God, the angels, uh, demons, and the disciples. The Jesus disciples knew him well. And here's how they described it. Nathaniel said, You are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. How about this guy? This is the doubting fella, Mr. Thomas. I don't believe unless I can stick my finger in his side and show me his hands. 
So Jesus says, oh, hey, Thomas, as he walks, it just appears to him there. He says, hey, come here, come here, come here. Help yourself. And look how he responds, my Lord and my God. So he went from skeptic to, oh, I'm sorry, Lord. He had an instant change of heart from a guy who just, skeptic. I won't believe. He was pretty hard out until I see. How about Peter? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. John, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. So we're getting a good cross-pollination uh, of opinions here. Even some of Christ's foes, he was God. Nicodemus was a member of the Jewish High Council. I'm reading from John 3.2. They would eventually vote to put Jesus to death and came to Jesus one night to talk to him. Remember that one? The talk at night, Nicodemus? He was an educated man. Nicodemus admitted that the leaders of some of Jesus' strongest opponents believed that he was a teacher who has come from God. Though he probably was a polytheist, the Roman centurion, who witnessed the crucifixion, says, oh, surely he was a son of God when the skies turned dark. And we saw from non-biblical sources last week how the skies turned dark. And that was recorded, not even in the Bible, at the time of Christ's crucifixion. And there was an earthquake. We saw that from non-biblical sources last week. So a wide variety of people bore testimony to the fact that Jesus was truly God. The New Testament records, others agreed too, that Jesus led a sinless life. Those who knew Jesus best. God can sin, but what about Jesus? Many people are tested to his perfect sinless life. And if Jesus were God, he'd have to live a sinless life. It will be the one thing if only those who'd heard about Jesus said he lived with that sin. But what about those who knew him best? Again, the two disciples that knew him best, James and John, both said this. He committed no sin. And as he was found in his mouth, he was righteous. So we said that he's pure. Consider these remarkable statements about those who had no reason to make them. None. In fact, they had the opposite reason, unless they were true. They said this, the Jewish leaders who rejected him said, they sent the disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity. That's a nice way to start from your enemy. <laughs> we know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth and you aren't swayed. In other words, he's not fearful of anybody because you pay no attention to who they are. Judas, who betrayed him again, I've sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. An officer who watched him die. We've seen that before. Pilate, we've seen that. And Herod. Herod, even Herod found nothing to deserve of death. Neither was Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. So we've seen a huge cross-pollination of this fact here, that he led a sinless life. He lived a life of complete moral perfection. He loved all people. He was a perfect man. He gave up his life to die for people like you and me. And I love what he says here. In John 10, he says, no one takes my life from me. Not these Roman guys, not Pilate, not Herod, not anybody. But I lay it down on my own accord. I do this willingly. I have authority to lay my life down and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. No one who was merely a man could have lived such a life. And the life of Jesus is proof that he's God. Now, another powerful proof, and this is one that really you can use very powerfully. And many Christians even haven't ever come to grips with this one. It comes from prophecy. Biblical prophecy is nothing like modern day psychic prophecy, so-called predictions most of which never come true. For example, in 2010, quite a number of the world's most famous psychics said that Hugh Hefner would die, Queen Elizabeth would die. This is in 2010. Well, last time I checked, both of them are still alive. Uh, they also said that the Empire State Building would fall down last year. Last time I checked, it's still there. Okay. In contrast to those false predictions... In total contrast, biblical prophecy is 100% accurate. I'm about to prove that to you with hard science. The whole focus, let me get this straight too, by the way. The whole focus, Old and New Testament, is about one person, 
Jesus Christ. Yes, the Old Testament. Don't fall for any heresies that poo-poo that part. It's all pointing to Jesus. There are many prophecies about him in the Bible. At his first coming, Jesus fulfilled more than 60, just in the one event of him coming, more than 60 found in over 300 references to him within the Old Testament. These are kind of vague, as you're going to see, but they're extremely detailed, made centuries in advance. Some of them are very unusual. I mean, like weird. Like what? And they only ever fit one man, as you'll see. Here's a few so you can see the powerful prophetic evidence that Jesus is God. Now, as we're going through these, I want you to ask what one person in all of history of the world would fulfill all of these. All. First one, born in Bethlehem. There's a reference. You can go look it up in your own time where it says he will be born. So beforehand, hundreds of years, centuries before, he was told, born in Bethlehem. Actually, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, because there are two Bethlehems. So it's like saying this. Say there's two Howicks, right? But it said Howick in East Auckland. So it wasn't Howick somewhere else. It was Howick in East Auckland. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Very specific. Second, how about born of a virgin? That's pretty weird. In fact, there was even... Further back, there's many references to being born of a virgin. One of the most stunning to me is way back in Genesis. When again it says, and the seed of a woman will crush his head. Now, that's a reference to the virgin birth because in the Bible, every time it talks about the seed, it's a seed of a man for obvious reasons, right? How does a woman have a seed? Never ever referenced before apart from in Genesis. Prophecy of the virgin birth. Secondly, we have a herald. Who would that be? Who was the herald that came before Jesus? John the Baptist, right. And then he would perform miracles and teach parables. That's an interesting one, that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey on a certain day, not just any day, on a specific day. That he'd be forsaken by his disciples. Actually, other places, I don't include them all, that he'd be betrayed for 40 pieces of silver. Interesting. Forsaken by his disciples. Silent before his accusers. Not Offering verbal defences. Didn't do that. He'd be wounded, sneered at, spit upon, actually stuck in the... Oh, I think well, I'll talk about that a little later on. Over here, yeah. But he would die, actually, it specifies the year of his death. AD 33. I'm going to show you where that comes from. So you can defend this point. That he'd be crucified with rebels either side. Huh? It tells you that. That he would suffer and die for our sins. That he would be pierced in the side, which was not normal. The normal way on the, when they're on the cross to speed up because the guys wanted to go home, they'd take a club and wallop the leg so they'd break the leg and they'd go down. But the Bible said, no, the bone of his body will be broken instead he'd be stuck in the side. Who would that refer to? That they'd save half his garments at the bottom and they'd be parted and they'd cast lots for them. And that's gamble for his clothes. That's what it says. They'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. And then he would rise from the dead. Now these detailed prophecies were made centuries before he was born. Their fulfilment cannot be accidental or a result of chance. So, Jesus clearly claimed that he was fulfilment of these ancient prophecies. He claimed the Old Testament prophecies were written about him. In fact, he said he came to fulfil them. Look at this, Luke 24. At the beginning with Moses, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have sat there and listened to that conversation? That would be amazing. Verse 44, he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, which were all written down. All that must be fulfilled. And every one of them was. And then uh, John 5, 39, you diligently search the Scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. They're Scriptures, guys. You're missing the point. Testify about me. That's what he was saying. You're studying, so it's like reading a book about your daughter or something like that, really looking, and then she's standing right next to you and you're ignoring her. 
Duh. He's saying, you guys are missing the plot. So here's, here's a very interesting prophecy. This is an amazing prophecy as we wrap this up because it proves to me, just if you want to choose one verse, there are hundreds, I've chosen one, that Jesus and only Jesus is the Messiah. You see, let me, let me set the background so you understand. So when you explain this, you can explain this yourselves with confidence. The Jews have been completely conquered by Nebuchadnezzar's army and taken away into Babylon, which is Iraq today, over that way. And Jerusalem and the temple, what they'd do is when the armies come, they'd sack your town. They'd literally tear it down, like with bulldozers, but not bulldozers, you know what I'm saying? They'd just tear the whole place down. Now, Daniel was sitting up there and he knew about the writings of a, of a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. And that it said they will be in captivity for exactly, well, actually, for 70 years after which God will bring them back to the homeland. So Daniel's sitting there now in the foreign land praying about this, acknowledging God's, uh, their sin against God, their nation's sin, and asking for God's mercy. And as Daniel prays, the angel Gabriel appears to him and gives him a vision, stay with me on this one, of Israel's future, including a clock, which is exactly going to tell them when the Messiah would come and some of the other events that would surround his appearance. This is just one prophecy. Let's pick it up here. Know and understand this, Christian and person who is seeking to understand who Jesus is. From, so I want to stick a stake in the ground here. From, from this point here. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until, I want to put the other point here, the other stake in the ground here. Until the anointed one, the ruler comes. So from here until the anointed, the ruler, the Messiah comes. From that time, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. And after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put, will be cut off. Will be cut off and will have nothing. And the people of the ruler who will come will destroy both the city and the sanctuary. Now, let's quickly look at the four main points of that. First of all, there will be decree back here to rebuild Jerusalem back here, which includes all its surrounds. And Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt. Then the anointed one, the Messiah, would be cut off. That's an idiom for being rejected or put to death. And then Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed again. Well, so you rebuild, the Messiah comes, and then the city and the sanctuary is sacked again. That's the prophecy. That's what it's saying. Let's take it bit by bit here. Let's take a look and follow me on this. Very simple on the math. If you multiply seven groups of seven years each, that gives you 49 years. And then multiply the 62 groups of seven years, that's a, uh, 62 sevens, you get 434, right? Trust me, I did it in Excel just to make sure it adds up, and it does. <laughs> now you add those two together, and how many years do you get? 483 years. Now, Daniel was told that these 483 years would begin when? At the issuing of the decree, right? That's when the clock would start. Click, your stopwatch goes. It starts there. Now, and it would end with the anointed one, right? And the anointed one, that's the ruler, that's the Messiah. And he will be cut off or put to death there. That's when. So let's get scientific now. We know exactly the date that this was issued in history. The, de the date that um, Artaxerxes issued that decree was March 5th, 444 BC. That was a starting date here. But when did it end? So that's when the gun started off. Click, go. Now, I just want to say one of those things. For those of you historians, you already know this, but those of you who do math. The Jews used a, uh, the Jewish calendar, which is the lunar calendar. It has 30 days in it. Exactly 30 days. That's how it does. Okay? Now, that was a calendar that was enforced. If you take from that date... Using the Jewish calendar in force of that time, it takes us to exactly AD 33. Exactly. To the year. Now the ruler that Daniel predicted rode into Jerusalem in 33 AD and now what we call Palm Sunday. 
Does that kind of sound like anybody you know? The Messiah riding in on the donkey in AD 33? Maybe you read about that guy. <laughs> you can read about that event in Matthew 21 or Mark or Luke or John. It was so cataclysmic, it's recorded in all four Gospels. That event was saying something. Because all the Jews knew that the Messiah was supposed to ride on a donkey in there. Now within a few days of that event, the anointed one was put to death as Daniel has also predicted. He will be cut off. And by the way, it wasn't long after that, as we learned last, last week, that the temple in the city was destroyed again. Remember that? Completely destroyed, just as Daniel had prophesied. Now, a prophecy made centuries in advance was fulfilled by Jesus Christ in detail, not vague generalities, to the year. Only one person who fulfilled every one of these prophecies, and that would be Jesus Christ. Now, is it possible, and you've got to ask this, you've got to ask this, is it possible that anybody could have prearranged that? You know, fiddle the figures, cook the books. Several studies have shown how impossible it will be to fulfill even, let's just take eight out of the 300 prophecies. Dr. Peter Stoner, you can look him up, calculated the mathematical odds of one man fulfilling just these, just these eight. It bigger belief beyond this. To be born in Bethlehem, to have a forerunner like John the Baptist, to enter Jerusalem on to be betrayed by a friend, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Have the silver be used to buy Potter's Field, which was actually called, it says, this silver will be used to buy a field called Potter's Field, and that's exactly the name of it. Amazing. Refused to defend himself and be crucified. Those are the ones that he, that he ran the numbers on. And, by the way, has been reviewed by the American Scientific Affiliation. The probability of just eight. This is one I want to get in your mind. And those of you who've been at New Hope may understand this with a deeper appreciation. Imagine something the size of the area of Texas. With 50 cent coins two feet deep, which is bigger than Bloom in Africa. It's huge. Two feet deep with 50 cent coins. Now I want you to imagine taking one of those 50 cent coins and randomly marking it with a red X and burying it somewhere, I don't know, wherever you want, randomly in Texas. Right? It could be anywhere in the two feet and anywhere in the entire place. And then I want you to imagine you take a blindfolded lady and you stick her in a helicopter and you say, right, sweetie, where do you want to go? Right, left, backwards or forwards? And she just chooses randomly. And she can fly for hours one way or hours another way and change her mind and all this. And then you say, tell me when you stop. After you've been flying for who knows, four hours, she says, stop. You put the helicopter down, she walks down, still blindfolded, digs around there and she picks up somewhere down there the one exact red 50 cent piece. That is the same chance as the prophets of having eight prophecies come true in any one man. And that, if you want to be scientific, is 10 to the 17, 1 in 10 to the 17. Those messianic prophecies are beyond coincidental. Beyond. Something truly supernatural is going on here. But many of his fellow Jews didn't quite see that. Imagine the odds of going every 300 ones coming to pass. It seems that coincidence doesn't explain the facts. Rather, it seems to me and seems reasonable that God had planned it with incredible omniscience. He knows it all. So fulfilled prophecy is a very powerful proof that Jesus is indeed who he claimed to be, the Son of God. Now, at the end of this, so far, we built quite a list of supporting evidence that fortify the claims of Christianity. We've seen evidence that Jesus not only claimed to be God, but he also proved himself to be God. Now, one very important question about Jesus remains that we haven't covered. And we're going to really drill on this next week. Did Jesus Christ actually rise from the dead? Did he do that? Many doubt the New Testament accounts that he claims to have come out of his tomb alive on the third day. Therefore, next week, we're going to examine evidence that shows Jesus' resurrection was a historical fact. Father, thank you that your word is so amazingly real 
It integrates with real life and the facts and the science and the archaeology. Thank you, Father, that you are so amazing that your, your wisdom is far beyond what we can comprehend. And Lord, you arrange all things for your glory. And I pray today for people who are wanting to share their faith at work, that you'll bring these things back to their remembrance. For people who are searching for you, that they would be quickened to, Father, further investigate your claims, to figure out, Lord, whether what you said is the truth. And if it is, what does that mean for my life? I thank you for this opportunity to share your word and to fulfill prophecies in Jesus' name.